The king has returned. The prophecies fulfilled. The years of longing are over. The king has returned. And now all will be made right. Amidst shouts of praise and tears of joy, the pleading for justice, the cries for our enemies' defeat. The king has returned. The king who was driven from his land as an infant, who spent his first years as a refugee, who understands pain and suffering. But this king is not who we were looking for. This king brings justice not over our enemies, but in the midst of our enemies. He brings peace, not in our land, but in our souls. He is the answer to the prayer we did not know we were praying. The king has returned. Long live the king. When a king went out to conquer, his return really meant something. It really did. I mean, when you look back to the roars of the crowd, did you guys hear that roar? <laughs> when a king went out to battle and went out to conquer, his return said a whole lot to the place where he returned. One, it said the battle was over and that their, their peace their victory was secured through the battle of the king. But it meant more than that because when the king returned, he would always reestablish himself on the throne is what he would do. And it would give the people a sense of confidence as they looked at and faced their lives, their everyday lives. And so when Jesus returns to Jerusalem this time, he returns to the shouts of people who... We're looking for something that they had not found in their religious leaders or rulers. They had not found it in the political system of their world. And when Jesus returns to Jerusalem this time, he returns to shouts of Hosanna, God save us, is what he does. Unfortunately, when you look at this story, it's really more of a story about rejection than it is anything else because it's the rejection of religious leaders that would come immediately. And if you follow the storyline through the rest of the week, you'll find out that the same people who celebrated his entrance into Jerusalem would one day cry out, crucify him. The religious leaders reject him for fear of losing and the multitudes who celebrated his entrance into the city would eventually reject him because they realized they would not gain from him what they wanted. Religious-driven people reject Jesus because they fear the loss of control. But the miserable masses, and I would call it this, the miserable masses, because they really were miserable, who hoped that Jesus would deliver them from both the political and religious corruption that control their lives the miserable masses would shout, 
because they wanted Jesus to change their external circumstances. But as we all know, Jesus didn't come initially to change our environment. He came to change our hearts. Today's text truly exposes the first group, and the days that followed will expose the second group. Let's read the text together today. I want you to read this. This is the story of what we call the triumphal entry. We call it Palm Sunday because this is the Sunday Jesus enters into Jerusalem. The Bible says that when he had said these things, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. Now, let me kind of give you a background because when he said what? Obviously, in Luke, we have the record of Jesus teaching two prominent parables about the kingdom and how God was going to take the kingdom away from a particular group, and eventually he would entrust that to another group. And it's an interesting story because uh, obviously he's making some people mad with his stories right now. And so on his way from Jericho, where he's had an encounter with uh, a little short guy called Zacchaeus, you guys remember the story, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Wee little man was he. You guys remember that story? Maybe you learned that song in growing up. The kids aren't in here. They need to learn that little song. He had an encounter with a tax collector, which makes him mad. And now Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, is teaching these parables. The Bible says, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you tying it? I think the question would be, if anyone asks you why you're untying it, it's probably when someone asks you. If you were taking my donkey, I'd probably want to know you're taking my donkey. <laughs> Simply say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, who sent, went away and found it just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now, obviously, they have some familiarity with Jesus. The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Those words sound familiar? Where were those words spoken? At the birth of Christ. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now you are, they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. And then listen to these words, because they did not know the time, you did not know the time of your visitation. 
You did not know the time of your visitation. Um, just a little of my week and how I plan for the week. Uh, generally, I'm probably a third of the way into next sermon, Sunday sermon right now. I'm not preaching, but in my planning process. Every Tuesday morning, I gather with our other two campus pastors and we talk through the text that we're going to be using and then we agree on what our kind of structure is going to be and outline is going to be. And that outline is utilized in both all three congregations of our church. And um, hopefully we get it done that day so that the office can get it printed and on time and things of that nature. That's sort of our goal. Um, from that point, then every pastor is free to develop the sermon based on his own teaching style, his own experience, his own congregation. Uh, that does matter. You got to look at your congregation when you're preaching. If you didn't know, uh, it does matter. I remember a good friend of mine who was asked to go preach in a little country church outside of Brownwood, Texas, with a, topic, a, a whopping a population of seven. And he had never preached before. And so when he got there, the average age in the little building where they were meeting was probably 88 years old. And he preached on the sin of chasing women and carousing and drinking. <laughs> the next day in our preaching class, our professor said, young men, when you start to preach, you need to look at your crowd before you start yelling. So there's a component in which each of these guys are able to develop their own illustrations. We're not trying to clone per se. We're creating a direction together. And so from that point forward, generally, this is what consumes my thought process. I think about this um, pretty much every waking hour at some point. Everything I do, every encounter I have, every conversation I have, I think about these points that we're going to be thinking about. Well, I did that this week. Last night, about 10 o'clock, I finished writing what I thought was a great sermon, and I woke up this morning and something in my heart said, rewrite it. And I knew that wasn't God, but it was, and so I was up early this morning because God sort of took me in a new direction with the same skeleton. Of course, the outline's the same. But today, I, I want us to simply look at our motives because I think motives really do matter. When you look at these people what they were doing was reflective of what they were doing was reflective of a belief system that they had in their heart. What motivated the religious leaders was different than what motivated the crowds or the masses of people who were crying hosanna, but motive really does matter. And today's message, I think, kind of helps us understand our own motives. And we think, when we think about why we do what we do, because the why of what we do may be more important than the what of what we do. Because we've all done things, good things. We've all done good things for the wrong reasons, haven't we? Has anybody else done that? The other morning I left Starbucks and had a brand new cup of coffee. Walked by this homeless guy and I felt sorry for him and I thought, oh, I'll give him my coffee. He was happy I gave it to him. And then I got in the car and God said, why did you do that? And I'm glad I did. I, I didn't need another cup of coffee. I'm glad I did. But I also know that God was saying, Jim, look at your motives because your motives matter. Did he need coffee? Did he need Jesus? 
Did you tell him that? You see, motives matter. And what you find in this text of Scripture is you find two misplaced motives. People doing something different, but the reality is they were all doing it for the wrong reasons. And what we discover in this text of Scripture are some simple things that help us assess why we do what we do. So I'm going to look at three things because I'm a Baptist preacher and we always look at three things. Um, Why do we do what we do? And how do we really look at our motives? Well, in this text of Scripture, I think we see some misplaced motives. And let's look at them together. First of all, when our motives are misplaced, the first thing is we can't see the plan that directed him. We have a hard time seeing the plan that directed him. The people who were there that day, whether they were in the religious crowd or whether they were in the mass of people who were shouting Hosanna, they did not understand him. They did not understand why he came. There's actually a third motive present in this, te- present in this text. It was actually the motive of Jesus. Why would Jesus, why in the world would Jesus endure such rejection and adversity and hardship in his lifetime, but more importantly, in these next few days, why would Jesus endure such adversity? And I think it's really simply this, because Jesus' motive was simply the fulfillment of the plan and purpose for which he had come into the world. He had come into the world for this reason. This is why he came. You see, Jesus was fulfilling the eternal and predetermined plan of the Godhead for his earthly life. Notice Matthew's record of this event. Matthew was writing to Jewish people, so the fulfillment of prophecy was critical in his defense of the life of Jesus. And and, and so as Jesus enters in on this day, the scripture states in Matthew 21 that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a beast of burden. In other words, Jesus was fulfilling the purpose, the eternal purpose and plan of God. Now, the desire to know and accept the plan, of, uh, the plan or purpose of God is one of the more critical aspects of our life, and it's really critical in the life of every believer. I mean, I spent much of my life asking this question, what is God's plan for my life? I mean, you've asked that question, haven't you? I mean, what is God's plan for my life? And it's a good question. It's really too long. Really, the question is a little bit too long. In fact, several years ago, I, 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 was, I was talking to an older pastor. Now I'm the older pastor. But I was talking to an older pastor, and, and I told him, I said, I just want to know God's plan for my life. And he says, the question is too long, Jim. I said, what do you mean the question is too long? He said, well, let's shorten it a little bit. The real question is not what is God's plan for your life, but simply what is God's plan. What is God's plan? You see, it's not about me. But often we make it all about us, don't we? It really isn't. It's not about us. You see, the Israelites were so absorbed with their lives that they missed the life that really mattered. They were imposing their wishes on God and ended up missing what God was doing for them looking for someone to deliver them from 
adversity in life. They missed the one who came to deliver them from the problem that was inside of them because if God doesn't deliver you from the problem inside of you, you'll just create greater problems around you. You see, until you allow Jesus to free your heart, you will never understand why he came. You will never understand why he came. And my prayer for you this week is that you will learn to simply say, God, what is your plan and purpose? Rather than asking God to affirm your wishes. My prayer is that you'll see the incredible purpose you have because Jesus fulfilled his purpose for coming into this world. Now, you're not going to do anything wrong if you had for my life. As long as your goal and desire is the purpose and plan of God. But I've discovered, I don't know about you, I've discovered that what I want with my life doesn't always align with what God wants for my life. Even sometimes when I think it does. You know, when I, when I first moved to this city, it really wasn't a city. It was a town. I mean, it was a much smaller. You guys remember those days when, when the town was much smaller? It's been nearly 30 years now. And remember White's Canyon right up here? This is White's Canyon. How many of you remember when there was a bridge, but there was no road on the other side of the bridge? How many of you remember that? We called it the bridge to nowhere. Okay. And you had to get, to get into Canyon Country, you had to get off on Sierra Highway, drive down Sierra Highway, all the way to Soledad and to make a left and drive all the way down into Canyon Country. And I remember that. And when I came, man, I, I'll tell you, I was going to change the world. And uh, it, didn't, it didn't go the way I planned. It really didn't. In fact, my first eight months here were really tough. I'd come to a group of about 13 people, and in my wisdom, I'd preach that down to about seven. And man, these people told me, we just want you to come and we'll follow your leadership. They lied to me. <laughs> and I found a place up on the hill. Uh, you go out Sand Canyon, you keep going up the hill, and you get to the top of the, right there by the fire station that's up there in Angeles. And you go up there, and there's a rock, and I used to go up there and sit. And one day I went, and I just so frustrated. And I said, God, I don't understand. I mean, I left a church that loved me, cared for me, cared for my family. Man, it's just not working. And, and, and something happened that day that I, I, I will never forget. It, it, it was very important. It really was because there was a sense in which God had to kill the motive of my dream. Not my dream, but the motive of my dream. Because honestly, if I were honest, much of what motivated me come and do what I did is because I wanted people to say, look what Jim did. And on that day, I, I, I got on my knees on a rock. I couldn't do it now. It hurts. And I said, okay, God, this is your deal. It's not mine. And I, and I, and I, may, not, I may not do what I imagine with my mind, but I can honor you with my life. And on that day, I said, okay, God, I will. And God began to change some things. And he did uh, significantly. 
And I can promise you things have not turned out the way I imagined them to. I mean, I, I, I never imagined that I'd be stuck in a junior high for 25 years. I mean, it's probably academically where I belong, but, <laughs> but I never dreamed of being in this building for 25 years. I never dreamed of um, splitting the church and creating two more locations. I mean, that was, that was so far off my radar, you can't even begin to imagine. Somebody asked me one time why I did it, and I said just simply because I felt like that's what God wanted, wanted us to do, and all I need to do, all my responsibility is simply be obedient. You know, I look back now, and it probably wouldn't have been good for me if things that had turned out the way I wanted them to. Because here's the reality. I wouldn't trade this church for any mega church in the world. Not a bit. Now, I'm not, I'm not against those churches. I'm grateful for those churches. I'm grateful for the things God has done in their life and their ministry and their history. But you know what? This isn't about us. This is about the Lord Jesus. And, and I know this. God says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a future and a hope. Now, don't, don't misrepresent that. I also know this. The Bible says there are many plans that exist in a man's heart, but the purpose of God prevails. Guys, I live on that verse nearly every day of my life. You see, Jesus was right where he belonged. He was right where he belonged. He was where he belonged at the exact right time. And he was fulfilling the purpose of redeeming human hearts. When our motives are correct, we see the plan that directed the epic story of Jesus. We find contentment in our stories because we realize, really, we're just part of his story. Our contentment is in his story because we realize that our lives are just a part of his story. And so it's important for us to understand that when our motives are misplaced, we cannot see the plan that directed him. But when our motives are correct, we understand that our stories are really cool because they're part of his story. Let's look at the second one. When our motives are misplaced, we will not offer him the praise deserving of him. Now, I probably should have said that just, we didn't offer him the praise that he deserved, but, you know, I'm... I'm an alliterator, so I had to alliterate it. That doesn't mean I'm illiterate, by the way. You think Jesus deserves praise? Do you? Seriously? Why do you get here so late? I will never get that out of my system. I don't care. <laughs> I think we'd all agree Jesus deserved the praise and the worship of everyone who would reject him that day. He deserved the worship of those who would soon turn on him. And the truth is he deserves our praise today. But you know this, the religious withheld praise from him and worship from him because they were motivated by personal desires. 
They were motivated by the power and prestige and the things that were a part of their life. But the same thing is true of the, of the big group. I mean, the big group praised him for a little while, but it wouldn't be long till the shouts of Hosanna would turn into shouts of crucify him. Why? Why in the world? Because he deserved their praise. The truth is, is their hearts were at odds with God. And the religious leaders resented Jesus receiving the praise he deserved. And in this passage, we find mostly a record of their rejection of Jesus. Notice the reaction of the religious leaders to the hosannas that Jesus was receiving. Matthew 21, 15 and 16, in a parallel passage of this says, when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. You've been around people who get mad when good things happen. I mean, they were indignant. They weren't just mad. They were ticked. I don't know what ticked is, but ticked is really indignant. <laughs> and they said to him, do you hear what they're, they're, these, they're saying? Tiger is winning? No. <laughs> That's terrible. I better turn this thing off, isn't it? I tell you guys to turn your phones off, and then I don't do it. At least they didn't call this time. There it goes. Slide off. All right. Um, let me start again. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise. Um, how many of you have children? How many of you were in the birth room when your children were born? <laughs> guys, how many of you guys were in there? You guys remember that? I remember a day when they didn't let you in there. You had to stand outside and wait. That was in my early, early years. My dad always went to the hospital and sat out with the father waiting. Now you got to go in and coach. That's an interesting coaching job, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, I, I can't even begin to imagine what a mother feels. But I honestly believe that the first cry of an infant is one of the purest expressions of praise the world will ever hear. Jesus said, look, out of the innocence, not the perfection, they're born little sinners, we know that. Out of the innocence of these infants, perfect praise is expressed. Independency. And really what that's what praise is. Praise is the recognition of our complete dependency on God. But because their hearts were at odds with God, they resented. Please note this passage is not about God getting or not getting what he deserved. God always gets what he deserves, or God gets praise. That's just normal. 
Notice the response of Jesus to the religious leaders in today's text. He said, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I told you several years ago, 1986, I went to Israel for the first time. And back then, they didn't have any laws against picking stuff up and taking it home. And so when we were on the Mount of Olives getting ready to descend into the Temple Mount, they let us walk a little ways as if Jesus were riding that donkey and the guy was with us said, reach over, pick up a rock, put it in your pocket as a memento and every time you refuse to praise God, reach in your pocket and grab that rock and remind yourself that you should never let a rock outdo you. And uh, I carried that rock for a long time. This time when we went to Israel a couple of summers, not summer before last, uh, the, they check you for carrying anything out of there. I was afraid I'd pick up a rock that might have a symbol on it and go to jail, so I didn't get me a rock. And, uh, the truth is, all of creation is expression of praise to God, but they do it naturally. You and I do it by our own volition and will. Do you realize this? Do you realize this? You have been invited by the God of the universe to enter his gates with praise and his gates with thanksgiving every day of your life. In fact, you look at that verse, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. So I was studying it this week. Many people believe that that psalm was written as a prophetic utterance of what would happen on this day in the history of Jesus' life. Praise is essential in our walk with Jesus. Let me read with you some reasons we ought to praise Jesus. First of all, we ought to praise him because the Bible commands it. As the psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Anybody here have breath? Anybody not have breath? Let us know because we're going to be hauling you out of here in a minute, okay? Everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's the fact that you're breathing. It's an expression of, of praise to God, whether you choose to do it or not. If you're breathing today, it's an expression of praise to God, where you think air comes from, Psalm 150, verse 6. That's not where air comes from, but that's the command of Scripture. Number two, praise facilitates access to God. Obviously, it's the blood of Jesus that paves the way for our forgiveness from sin and our relationship with God, according to Hebrews 10, 19. That being said, our perpetual praise provides a clear and unhindered passage. Therefore, we are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and to his courts with praise. Number three, praise is where God lives. You say, wait a minute. Isn't God omnipresent? Doesn't God live everywhere all the time? Well, absolutely, that is true. Yet his presence is magnified in an atmosphere where his people choose to sincerely and authentically praise him. The Bible says that God is enthroned on the praises of his people. Number four, praise chases away despair. There's no better way to beat the blues than to change your focus from yourself to God. Such as a shift, such a shift produces what the Bible calls the oil of gladness, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Psalm Isaiah 61, verse 3. Praise is an effective weapon against the devil. I firmly believe Satan wants a good angel. Lucifer and God's praise leader, according to Isaiah 14, was kicked out of heaven and doomed to destruction due to his desire to be like God. He has hated praise 
ever since because it's a reminder of him of what he gave up that he can't get back. And number six, we praise God because he's worthy of it. I don't need another reason. He's worthy of my praise. The Bible says the Lord is great and worthy to be praised. While it's obviously good to praise and encourage those around us, God alone deserves the heartfelt worship, and God alone deserves our supreme allegiance. You see, when our motives are in alignment with his heart, we will offer him the praise that he deserves. I want you to look at the last one, and I want to look at the text before we actually look at the point. Put them up at the same time. The text says that as Jesus approached the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not have one stone upon the other because you did not know the time of your visitation. Powerful passage of Scripture because it's really a good description of what unconfessed or uncontrolled sin produces in our life. Listen to this. Enemies set up a barricade around you. I got a call this week from someone telling me about someone I've known in the past who was a very, very faithful man of God, but he... uh, he wandered off. You ever wandered off? He wandered off. And unfortunately, he's gotten so far away that he loves his sin more than he loves his Savior. And the hard part in all of this for me is I know several people who've tried to con- connect with him and contact him, but he has nothing to do with anybody. You know why? Because he's allowed Satan to build a barricade around his heart. Can I tell you something, folks? When you're going through a tough time, the worst thing you can do is isolate yourself from God's people. Because if you do, Satan will build a barricade around your heart. And you won't let people in. You won't even let God in because it'll remind you of what you were. And the truth is God never wants you to be what you were. He wants you to be a whole lot more than that. Here's the point. When our, motion, when our motives are misplaced, we miss out on the passion that drove him. Jesus was literally driven to the cross by people who would reject him. Again, he was despised and rejected among men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Just think, the very people he had chosen to be his own would reject him. Think about it. Abraham was chosen by Jesus. The very people he chose to be his people rejected him. The Bible says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Have you ever felt the pain of rejection? It's a tough one, isn't it? But here's the deal. Jesus wasn't grieving over the death. He would die. He was grieving because of the rejection of his people whose blindness would result in their continued separation from God and the brokenness that would come into their lives and plague them. You see, Jesus knew he would win. I mean, he knew the end of the story. He told them, look, they're going to kill me, but three days later, I'm coming back to life. He knew. I know the end of the story. 
I read it. But Jesus knew the end of the story. He knew he would win. Listen again to what it says. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. Sounds real familiar, doesn't it? You and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. When was the day of your visitation? I mean, when was the day of your visitation? I remember the day of my visitation. I do. I'm just a little kid. I mean, it's it's long time ago. But I remember the day of my visitation. I remember I was sitting on the second row right there by where Chewy is. My mom was sitting there. And this is the only night I probably ever listened because I didn't really listen. I squirmed. I went home and I had marks all here because mom would pinch me. Anybody else ever get pinched in church? My goodness, it hurt. She could pinch you right under there. Man, it was terrible. But that night I heard, and I'll never forget, I'm sitting there and I heard the preacher, but more than that, I heard the Holy Spirit. And he called me out as a little kid. I'll never forget looking at my mom. She knew something was wrong because I'd listened. And I'll never forget, I looked at her and I said, Mom, and she always did this, go see your daddy. And my daddy was standing right here. And I'll never forget stepping out into a little aisle in a Baptist church in Mariloma, California, and walking right here to see my daddy. And it was my time of visitation. You know, I'm of the opinion, it's just my opinion, that every human being that ever lives will at some point in their life have a moment of visitation. I don't know how it works. I don't know. I, I, I can't explain it. I mean, we've been learning in our theology classes some things about God, and the number one thing we're learning is you can't explain him. But the moment of visitation requires a response on your part. But I want you to see the passion that drove Jesus in this text of Scripture. And I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. If you've had your moment of visitation, why are you withholding your moment of visitation from other people? What drives your lives toward those who are outside of Christ? Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus told the disciples, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The first two have already happened. He died and he rose again. It's time to proclaim. But then he says, I want you to wait. You're witnesses of these things. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. You see, when our motives are right, they are right because God, the Holy Spirit, produces in us the passion that drove Jesus into the cross, drove Jesus to the cross. And here's what I believe. I believe the passion that drove Jesus into the cross drives us into the world. And the passion that drove Jesus to a cross drives us into the community. 
Some of you say, well, I don't think they want it. Well, read this passage. You think they wanted it? What does that have to do with it? John MacArthur calls this text of Scripture the false coronation of a true king. You know why we're here today and why we're here in this building and why grace is in the building they're in and crossroads and real life and the sanctuary? You know why we're here today? Because 2,000 years ago, people were filled with passion and they became witnesses unto Christ. In nearly 2,000 years, people who have this passion, the passion of a Savior, have continued to carry out the mission of Christ. But the question is, what about us? What about you? Will we be a generation to which the gospel flourishes, or will we look back and see that we lost our passion and adopted our own plans, expected our own praise, and lost the passion to bring people to the cross? Love Joshua. I love Joshua. Joshua is one of the coolest guys in the Old Testament. He's one of the only two guys that gets to go into the promised land because he believed God, Joshua and Caleb. And God puts him in a place of leadership, and in the latter days of his leadership, the closing days, he challenged the Israelites with these words, if it's evil in your eyes to serve God, then choose this day who you will serve. Here's the reality. Everybody in this room serves somebody. And so if you think it's bad to serve God, then choose who you're going to serve. But no, you've got to give an account at the end. And then he says this. Whether the gods of the fathers served beyond, in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And then he said these words, and we all know these words. I have them in my house. You ready? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Really? Guys, that's an important comment, isn't it? I mean, who are you serving right now? Or what are you serving right now? I think it's time for us to say, look, choose who you serve. I hope today, the power of God in your heart, that you would be able to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's an interesting week for us, isn't it? Because it's the week before Easter. And people are going to come to church next week. The Christers are coming, right? <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? What would happen if we served them when they came next week and we were Christ to them? It's one of my favorite Sundays. I really like it. I like it because I always say Merry Christmas. <laughs> but I love the day. I love to meet new people. I love to see people I hadn't seen in a while. What would happen if we served them? No, what would happen if we served Jesus by loving them? make a huge difference. You got two little cards. I think there are two. Is there two in each folder? Two. 
Not very many, is it? Do you know two people who don't currently go to church? Please do this. Don't go invite people from other churches, okay? Let them go to their churches. Do you know two people who don't go to church? Do you? Would you, would you be willing to just say, hey, come go with me. I'm going at 9 o'clock. And um, we'll have good brunch. We'll have, a little, we'll have a little more than donut holes. We will have the donut holes, guys. Don't worry. Because okay? <laughs> that's your fix for the week, I know. But we'll have a little more. And, well, if they come to the second service, if you don't have children, come to the 9 o'clock service. If you have children, come to the 1045 service because we're going to have a little Easter egg hunt afterwards. Okay, we wanted to do it in between, but they say I preach too long. And you know that's not true, right? But here's the bottom line. People need to know Jesus. And you need to know Jesus. Maybe you don't today. Maybe you're one of those who have looked at Jesus because of what you think he might give you that you want instead of recognizing that Jesus provided for you what you need and you need to accept him into your heart. I challenge you today to check your heart. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness and your mercy. God, we, 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 we serve a name that's above every name. God, you are worthy of our praise and our adoration. You're worthy of our thanksgiving. And God, as we enter into the closing moments of this service, I pray, God, that you would be honored. As we praise you with hearts that simply desire you. And God, I pray that as we wrap up here today, that you develop in us the passion that we need to go into our world and tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, if there's anyone here today who needs to receive Christ, I pray the quietness of their heart right now. If the Holy Spirit has brought them to their moment of visitation, God, I pray they would simply just say yes and accept the gift that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, thank you again for the great gifts that you give us in Christ. And we commit these next few moments to you as we worship. In Jesus' name I pray.